All right, um, if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 5, if Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is giving us the ABCs, John's gospel as a whole is really the deepest and most profound reflection on the Trinity that we have in the entire Bible. And so... We're going to dig a little bit deeper in the second session looking at John chapter 5, but we're going to take some of the principles we saw in the, in the first session into this text. So remember Matthew 28, 19, one name that represents the one God. It belongs to the Father, it belongs to the Son, it belongs to the Holy Spirit, signifying that these three are the one God. These three are fully God, but we also see that they are truly, personally distinct from each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. So there's, there's a pattern, a twofold pattern, common naming what they hold in common, personal naming what makes them personally distinct. Well, that twofold pattern plays out in John chapter 5 in a very interesting way, but John also kind of adds some things that helps us deepen our understanding of this great mystery of the Trinity. And so, let's just jump right in to, to this passage. So, John chapter 5 begins with a healing that is performed on the Sabbath day. I think it's fairly likely that John's gospel was written with the assumption that a lot of its readers, a lot of its hearers, would be at a minimum familiar with gospel traditions that had been taught by other apostles in various churches across the uh, Holy Land and beyond, and possibly assumes that some of the readers and hearers would have actually read other Gospels. And there's debate about which Gospels might John's Gospel presuppose, possibly Mark's Gospel. Why, why does that matter when it comes to John chapter 5? Well, you remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that it is not uncommon for Jesus to perform miracles, and specifically miracles of healing, on the Sabbath. It's kind of a very common thing in the Synoptic Gospels, right? Um, and you remember when these things happen in the Synoptic Gospels, or when Jesus does something on the Sabbath that, that his opponents view as breaking the Sabbath, there's a pretty standard way that Jesus responds, okay? So, let's not think about a healing, but let's think about the, the incident recorded in Mark chapter 2 where the disciples are gleaning because they're hungry, they're passing through a field, and they're, they're pulling some, something to eat off of the, the tares of wheat and so forth. Um, and Jesus' opponents get mad and say, oh, see, you're breaking the Sabbath. Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath, and the idea is they're breaking the Sabbath under your watch, which makes Jesus culpable. 
because they're working on the Sabbath. So gleaning on the Sabbath is working on the Sabbath. And you remember how Jesus responds? Well, he actually says, he talks about the episode with uh, David, when he was hungry on the Sabbath and was given the showbread from the priest. Uh, he talks about, I think it's in Matthew's account, the, the priest who worked in the temple precincts on the Sabbath, performing ritual acts and so forth. And then he concludes with this statement, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What's the point about all these responses? Well, what he's trying to say is his opponents, they misunderstand the Old Testament by thinking that what his disciples are doing is working on the Sabbath. If you actually understand the Old Testament right, they're not breaking the Sabbath. Okay, they're doing things that are consistent with Old Testament law. Okay, uh, other examples we could mention, but but I'll mention that one. Well, this is why it's it's important to to understand that John may presuppose that his readers have read one of the other Synoptic Gospels, or at the very least, they're familiar with Peter's preaching. Okay, and how he would have talked about Jesus on the Sabbath. Because when Jesus is accused in John 5 of breaking the Sabbath, he doesn't reply by appealing to Old Testament precedent. Right? He doesn't reply by saying, well, this might seem to you like I'm breaking the law, but if you actually understand the Old Testament better, you would see I'm not breaking the law. He doesn't do that. What does he do? Well, let's look down um, at verse, into verse 9, beginning of verse 10. Now that day was the Sabbath where he'd healed the man, okay? So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing, may, nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So there's the kind of typical scene. Jesus has done something, his opponents are mad because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. So, so, so far, this is kind of a stereotypical Sabbath event. Jesus has performed a miracle, his opponents are angry because he's doing that thing on the Sabbath. Now, for John, we're just getting started. He doesn't respond, Jesus in John 5, doesn't respond by appealing to Old Testament precedent to say, no, actually, it's okay that I did what I did. He doesn't give that kind of response. He gives a very different response, and you see it in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. The thing that gets Jesus off the hook as a Sabbath breaker is not that what he's doing is consistent with Old Testament law. 
It's that what he's doing is consistent with what his father is doing, which is a very different line of defense. And it ratchets up his opponent's anger, and it ratchets up the nature of the charge. Now they're not just going to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, they're going to accuse him of something else, blasphemy. So look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He was even calling God his own father. What do they understand Jesus to be claiming when he says, my father is working until now and I also am working? Well, here's the thing. It's not just that Jesus calls God his father that's the problem. Okay, there, there's actually a, a, a very unobjectionable sense in which Jesus might call God his father. There's a sense in which God is the father of all human beings. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, is it? Talks about if we submit to the father of spirits, we will live. Uh, it's Luke's, I believe, genealogy where he traces genius, Jesus' lineage not just back to David, not just back to Abraham, but back to Adam. And, and at the conclusion of that genealogy, Adam is described as what? Son of God. You remember in Exodus chapter 4, the very first message that God gives Moses to give to Pharaoh, it says, Israel is my what? Firstborn son. Let him go that he may serve me. You remember 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the context of the Davidic covenant. What does God promise to the Davidic king? I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So, so here's the thing about it. Calling God father is not in itself a claim to deity. Adam in some sense is the child of God as are all human beings. Okay, why, And why would we call God father? Because we, we came into being because he created us. We received the breath of life from him, the father of spirits. Okay? Israel, the nation, you call the, the son of God, not in the sense that they're divine, but God brought Israel into being as a nation through the Exodus. And, and Deuteronomy chapter 32 describes this as God fathering Israel because he brought them into being as a nation through the Exodus. Okay? Second Samuel 7. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. God speaking to the Davidic king. What's the point there? Well, you remember Psalm 95. Yahweh is a great God and a great what? King above all gods. And he's the sovereign over all creation. In his hands are the caverns of the earth. The heights of the hills are his will. The sea is his for he made it. His hand formed dry land. Well, in the ancient world, you didn't grow up hoping one day to go into uh, uh, you know, 
to, to find yourself, to find the career you might want to do, go off to college. No, in the ancient world, you grow up and you take over the family business. Like father, like son, isn't just a matter of kind of, uh, we have the same last name, right? We might look like each other, but, but you inherit the family business. Baker and sons, <laughs> right? Dad's a baker, the sons are bakers. That's how it works. Well, so in the Davidic covenant, when Yahweh, the great God, the great king above all gods, says the Davidic king will be a son to me, what's going on there? Well, he's giving us kind of the internal logic of, of why the Davidic king is a king on earth. The Davidic king rules on earth because he is an earthly son of his father who what? Rules in heaven. It's an on earth as it is an on heaven thing. Like father, like son. The father's a king, the son's a king as well. So there's a sense in which Jesus could be saying, God is my father, that, that would not incite the charge of blasphemy. Well, what's going on? By saying my father is working till now and I also am working, Jesus is implying a very different understanding of the father-son relationship than the relationship that exists between God and Adam, between God and Israel, and God and David. What is it? Well, in Jesus' day, there, there's, there's much reflection on the Sabbath. There's a reflection about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, and they even come up with a, a list of rules that were supposed to kind of protect you from breaking the Sabbath. So you could only walk a certain distance because if you're walking too farther than that, that's work. Okay? You can only carry, thing of a, carry things of a certain weight because if you carry something heavier than that, it's work. And there's all kinds of rules. It's called a hedge around the law. And, and by keeping these rules, it's supposed to keep you from ever getting close to breaking the Sabbath law. But what Jews of this day understood quite clearly is that the prohibition against working on the Sabbath only applies to creatures. Why? Well, if God stops working on the Sabbath, then what happens? The world start, stops working. Psalm 104, you take away your spirit and what? We return to the ground. Right? In God and in God's providence, his, his perpetual sustaining activity, we live and move and have our being. Were God not to continue to uphold us for one second, there would be no us. And that's true on the Sabbath day as well. So the, the, the prohibition against working on the Sabbath applies to creatures, not to God, because there would be no creatures if God stopped working on the Sabbath. God providentially sustains the world on the Sabbath. So when Jesus says, yo, you've got a problem with healing, look, 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 this is just what, this is just the family business. <laughs> they said he was calling God his own father. And, 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 the, and the language there is He's saying he is the father's natural-born son. He's not an adopted creature, right, who has a kind of distant relationship to God. 
that we can call a father-son relation. He's saying he's the father's natural-born son. He's equal with God. He's in the family business in the fullest, strictest sense. Now, that claim is a profound claim, and it evokes the charge. It's basically a charge of blasphemy. It's explicitly what they're going to accuse him of in John chapter 10. Well, what I want you to notice in the response that Jesus gives in the verses that follow is how he spells out the nature of his relationship to the Father as Son, the, the, the nature of his natural relationship to the Father as the Father's Son. Notice first what Jesus holds in common with his Father in the verses that follow. So remember our two rules that we got from Matthew 28, 19? The Bible speaks about the persons of the Trinity by speaking what they hold in common with each other, but then it also speaks in a way that personally distinguishes them from each other. Well, first, let's look at what John 5, 19 follows, says that Jesus holds in common with his Father as the Father's natural-born Son. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So what's the first thing they hold in common? Their works. Okay, this isn't just like um, David's a man after God's own heart. What do we mean by that? Well, David, God's earthly son, David, an earthly king, he sort of resembles God. No, Everything the Father does, the Son does likewise. Not even just the same kinds of things, the same things. Wow. Let's keep going. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. And now we get an example of the works that the Father and the Son hold in common. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. All right, so the general thing, whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. So what do they hold in common? The divine works. Whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. That's a general principle. So creation, whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. Redemption, whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. But then note the specific example of working. Raising the dead. What's remarkable about this is that raising the dead in Scripture is a, not just a divine act, it's a uniquely divine act. Only God has the power to raise the dead. To conclusion of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, after Moses is, is singing the song about Israel's future and the judgment that's going to come upon them because of their sin, but nevertheless, the restoration that will follow because of God's faithfulness. 
you have one of the most profound statements of monotheism in all the Old Testament, a, a statement of God's name. He says, I, even I, am He. What does that sound like? I am who I am, Exodus 3.14, which is what? A kind of explanation of the tetragrammaton, the divine name. Behold, I, even I am He. I kill and I what? Make alive. In other words, what distinguishes me as Yahweh is that I have sovereign, absolute power over life and death. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. As the Father has the power to raise the dead, so does the Son. And, 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 and then Jesus launches into, we're talking about the, the hour is coming, it is now here, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who are loved. This is, is John's way of talking about something that was mentioned this morning um, when we were singing, right? The kingdom is future, but in another sense has already come. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. The resurrection of the dead is in the future, where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who live. But now, those who hear his voice by faith are also coming back to life, the new birth. So, he shares the Father's works, specifically the power of raising the dead. And this is because he is the Father's natural son. He shares his nature, his power. He performs the same things the Father performs. Second thing they share in this passage is honor. Now we read this, but look again at verse 22, 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, another divine prerogative, judgment. Notice the purpose that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. What else do the Father and the Son hold in common? Not only do they hold in common all the works of God, including raising the dead, they hold in common the right to be worshipped together as one God. Monotheism, belief that there is one God, for the Old Testament and for Judaism and for Christianity, Monotheism entails, here, here's your $20 theology word for the day, monolatry, Latreia worship. Monotheism entails monolatry, the worship of the one God and of only the one God. And of course, this is the greatest commandment in Scripture, to love the one true God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, to worship Him and to worship Him alone. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? What is the thing that leads to Israel's exile from the promised land after God had redeemed them from Egypt, brought them in, planted his temple, planted his king, and set up worship? They failed to worship God alone. God is zealous about this. In Isaiah, he says, I will not give my glory to another. My unique glory is God. And yet, Jesus says, 
the purpose of my coming, of my performing these great acts of healing and of raising the dead, is that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Common properties. The Son is the natural Son of the Father. He, he shares the Father's works. He shares the Father's worship. One more thing they hold in common according to this passage. Verse 26. After speaking of the resurrection of the dead, Jesus' power and authority to give life to whomever he will, he explains the basis of this power. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Life in himself. What does that mean? Self-existence. How many beings in the universe have life in themselves? There's one. God. All creatures, by definition, do not have life in themselves. All creatures, by definition, receive existence and life from outside of ourselves, from God, supremely, but immediately from other creatures, right? I'm the son of Bill and Lynn Swain. You have parents too, right? We, we are dependent in, in, in so many ways, supremely on God, but in a lesser way on each other and on creation, right? That's why you need that coffee to stay awake in the second hour. You're dependent. But God is independent. He does not receive existence from anyone else. He doesn't receive life from anyone else. He doesn't learn anything from anyone else. He doesn't receive permission to do what he does from anyone else. Well, why does Jesus have power to raise the dead? Because he has the power to live in and of himself. Just as the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life in himself. Now, that's common predication, common naming. The Son, because he's a natural-born Son of the Father, shares the Father's works, shares the Father's worship, shares the Father's very self-existent nature. But what's so fascinating about this passage, and again, this is what makes John, and, and really John chapter 5, one of the the most profound text on the Trinity in all of the Bible is that John not only shows us what the Son has in common with the Father as the Father's natural born Son, but he shows us how the Son has it in the common with the Father as Son. Go, go back to verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing from himself. Now, that might sound to us like this is him emphasizing his humanity, his creaturely nature. The word became flesh, so Jesus is both fully God and fully human. The son can do nothing from himself. Well, that must be describing his human nature, right? Well, 
Look at the rest of the sentence. The son can do nothing from himself, literally is how you translate that, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So, so the negation, the son can do nothing from himself, is not a way of talking about really what he doesn't do. <laughs> it's a way of talking about how he does everything he does. And what is everything he does? Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. What? Well, this is the distinction between common predication, personal predication. The son holds in common what he does with the father. But what distinguishes him from the father is the way he has it in common with the father. He does not act from himself, but he acts from the father. The father loves the son, shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these will show them you will marvel. Verse 26. As the father has life in himself, notice the verb, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. So, Verse 26, you see the same pattern again. There's something they have in common. Self-existence. The attribute that alone God has. But notice the distinct ways they have this. The Father has life in Himself. The Son personally receives from the Father to have life in Himself. What is going on here? Well, comes back to, to something we said the last hour. What distinguishes the person of the Trinity is not that one is the one God and the others aren't. It's not that one has certain divine attributes and the others don't. It's not that one performs certain works and the others don't. It's the distinct personal way they are the one God. Okay? The Father is the one God from Himself. The Son is the one God as His natural born Son who eternally receives all that he is and does from the Father. The Spirit is the one God, but he's the Spirit who receives everything that he is and does eternally from the Father and the Son. The distinction is not between what they are, but how they are what they are, who they are, if you will. Now, this leads to a, 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 a question and a challenge that has really been with uh, the church uh, since the earliest days of uh, preaching and proclaiming a gospel of a triune God. This language, and, and, and think of verse 26, the language of giving. As the Father has life in himself, so he is granted, he's given to the Son to have life in himself. Doesn't giving sound like a relationship that holds between the creator and creatures? Why is giving described as a relationship that obtains between the Father and the Son? If you look at Daniel, we won't turn over there, but the book of Daniel plays this theme out kind of across its pages. You get the stories of various pagan kings who ruled while Daniel and his comrades were in captivity. And you kind of got this repeated scenario where, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Belteshazzar or other kings, 
what happens is they, they kind of elevate themselves in pride. Look at me. Look what I've done for myself. And the God who rules in heaven humbles them. He takes away their kingdom from them. And repeatedly, the indictment that's brought against these kings is that their, proud, their pride stems from basically a lack of gratitude. They don't realize that everything they've received, their kingdom, their wealth, their power, it all came from God. God gave it to them. And so grace should lead to what? Gratitude. But instead of leading to gratitude, they have these things, they look what I got for myself, and that's pride. You refuse to honor the true source, and you claim yourself as the source. Well, Daniel goes on to describe the succession of pagan kings that are going to come in the future through the image of various beasts. And, and, and this goes back, I think, to the whole Nebuchadnezzar story. Because remember, what happens when Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself as God? God humbles him and makes him live like a beast for a space of time. Until he does what? Acknowledge that there's a God in heaven. Well, the idea is this. When man tries to elevate himself to God, God humbles him to be less than human. And so the various kings are described as beasts. But then the series is ended when one like what? A son of man, not a beast, comes. And you have this very interesting statement that's made in Daniel 7 about this son of man. Throughout the book of Daniel, the contrast between Yahweh, the high king of heaven, and all the Danielic pagan kings is this. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures forever. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom has a sell-by date. Belshazzar's kingdom has a sell-by date. And guess who sets the dates? Yahweh. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, you have the description of a son of man who's going to bring the end to these pagan kingdoms. And it says he appears before the Ancient of Days, which is a way of describing God on his throne. And it says to him will be given what? An everlasting kingdom. And his dominion will endure forever. Now, here's the thing that's weird about that. On the one hand, hey, that just sounds like we've, we've seen all these other kings. God gives you your kingdom. You're supposed to be grateful for it. If you're proud, he takes it away. God gives the Son of Man a kingdom. See, God giving, God giving. So both of them are creatures. And actually, the Son of Man is clearly a creature, okay? But there's something also that's very different about the Son of Man and all of these other pagan kings. What is it? All of these pagan kings, their kingdom has an, a sell-by date. But of the Son of Man, it says... Just as God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, what is he giving to the Son of Man? An everlasting kingdom. What, is the son, what does the Son of Man share with Yahweh? His eternal dominion. Well, what I think is happening here is John is trying to show us that there's a kind of giving that obtains between God and creatures. But there's another kind of giving 
that we should not confuse the giving that exists between the Father and the Son. And this brings us back to where we started. What upset Jesus' opponents in John chapter 5 was not just that he did something on the Sabbath, but the reason he gave for being able to do what he did on the Sabbath. He's claiming that God was his own father. He's making himself equal with God. The language there, his own father. Not a father by adoption, but a father by nature. Now, here's where the analogy on our level does add up, okay? When a human father has a human son, what kind of thing is that human son? It's a human being. That's what a natural-born son is. that shares the father's nature. Well, this is the stumbling block to Jesus' opponents. He's saying he's the natural-born son of the father means what? He is eternally received from the Father everything his Father is. And that's exactly what this chapter is about. He shares his Father's nature. He has life in himself. He shares his Father's works. Whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does. He shares the Father's worship that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the giving here is not a giving of a divine creator to a human creature. It's just a way of describing the eternal relationship of a divine father and a divine son. One gives, one receives. But the one who gives does not lose. He doesn't cease being self-existent when he gets son to have life in himself. The one who gains never started gaining. How do we understand that? He's always had life in himself. But there is within the blessed trinity this personal distinction the sharing of, of a life, sharing of divine attributes, the sharing of works, and the sharing of worship that they alone deserve. And it's very interesting. When, when you look at the temptation of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, my, my own view is that at the heart of the lie that the serpent places into Eve's mind is that, see this, this high God who, who's made these things, who's put you in this garden, who's given you this prohibition. The reason this high God gave you this prohibition is that he's trying to keep something back from you. And if you want that thing, you've got to reach out and take it for yourself. You've, you've got to throw off the yoke that God has placed upon you, the limitations you got to reach out and take it for yourself. The high God, he's trying to hold something back. One day I'm going uh, 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 to preach a sermon on what Eve should have said to the serpent. Like, you know, she should have said, well, that's a funny interpretation because have you seen all this? And, and, and did you know that, that, that he said of all these things, I can freely eat, I can eat whatever I want except for the one tree? And, and have you seen this guy right here? Like, from the moment I came into existence, he's been writing me poems. And, 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 and did you know that, that, that I'm actually the queen of this planet, and I rule it, and it's all under my dominion? Now, to say that he's trying to hold back from me, and, and, and by the way, this other tree, tree of life, says that the, the life that I have right now is just the beginning, and there's some kind of higher 
mode of existence that lies before me that, that, is, that is open to me if I just walk the path of obedience. Give me, like, you're telling me that God is trying to hold something back to, from me? She didn't say that. <laughs> she believed the lie. Well, the, what Jesus' opponents had right in John chapter 5 was that he was claiming the father, father was his own father, that he was the son, the natural born son of the father, and that he was making him, that he was, sorry, therefore equal with God. Like father, like son, in every way. What they had wrong was that he was making himself equal with God. And readers of John's gospel know why that's wrong. Why? Because John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was literally facing God. The Word was God. And John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh. He didn't make himself God. He's always been God. You know what he did? He made himself man. And why did he make himself man? John 3.16, the most probably well-known verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son, the eternal object of his love and delight. He gave his only begotten son to die on a cross for sinners like you and me so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So here's the thing. Bring it all back together, tie it up with a bow. What is the lie that the serpent spoke, infecting the psyche of all human beings. God's trying to hold something back from you. Therefore, you need to take matters in your own hand. Well, the gospel says, not only is God not holding something back from you, he gave his only begotten son. But this most wonderful and glorious gift that God has ever given on the stage of history he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You, you hear the comparison there. He's given us the best things, so all the lesser things, he's not going to hold back. That reveals outside of God what is true inside of God. The father who has life in himself is not selfish. Is, is not trying to protect his deity by keeping it to himself. But from all eternity, the Father has life in himself. He's granted the Son to have life in himself. And the Father and the Son sharing with the Spirit the same eternal being attributes and perfection of God. What the Trinity says to us, Smyrna says God is deeper on the inside than he is on the outside. What the Trinity says to us is that the reason we know that Satan lied to us in the garden. And the reason that we know that the cross isn't just even maybe some kind of divine getting backed into a corner, okay, fine, I'm going to provide a way for you to be saved, but I really don't like it. But it's actually the expression, the deepest expression of who God is. It's because he is a trinity of persons. As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the son to have life in himself. And we have come to know 
and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, First John says, and he who has the Son, what? Has life. Let's pray. Father, we worship you for your hands are open to us. They are not clenched. We know this because you gave your son to redeem us. You've given us your spirit to sanctify us. And, and, and these great acts, far from being strange or uncharacteristic of who you are, express the abundance of your grace to unworthy sinners, the kind of God you are in yourself, a God who is open-handed, a God who does not hold back. We pray that you would help us to be humbled and amazed by your grace, to rejoice in the dignity that you've given us that we should be called children of God through being united to your Son. And would we have the strength to honor your name, the name of your Son, the name of your Spirit, in our lives, on our lips, that all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may come to honor you and to honor the Son by the Spirit as they honor you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.